I want to begin by telling you a story. Long before the world was made, God existed in perfect love and perfect beauty and perfect glory as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they had a plan from all eternity past to create the world. They didn't need to. They weren't lonely. But they chose to nonetheless. And their goal, just like they did everything in their relations, was to display the glory and wonder of what they shared together as the Godhead. So, God created the world, and it was good. And then at the crown of creation, at the pinnacle, God made man and woman in his own image, in his own likeness. They were reflections of God's glory. And they were God's representatives to rule and reign over his whole creation. But sadly, they chose not to worship and obey God. They chose not to be God's representatives. A tempter came into the garden and led them astray. He tempted them to actually be God themselves. And so they disobeyed God's only command. And then they had to go away from God's presence, out from the good pleasures that God had created for them, into exile. And yet God had a plan to rescue them, to save them and bring them back. He promised that he would do that. He promised it would come through a deliverer. And the first stage of this plan was for God to choose Abraham and raise him up. God called Abraham to be a light to the nations. His descendants were to be God's own people. He would be their God. They would be his people. They were to walk before him blameless. And he would use them to draw all people on earth back to himself. Now, the third generation of Abraham went into slavery. And and there, they flourished. They just kept growing. You couldn't stop them from growing. That was part of God's blessing upon them. And yet, they were in bondage. So, God raised up Moses to deliver them. Moses came and led the people out of bondage, and back into a land that would flourish. They passed through the Red Sea. That was a kind of baptism by fire, so to speak. As they passed through the Red Sea, God saved his people, and he destroyed those who sought to oppose them. The evil nations were judged. And then along the way into the Promised Land, God gave the nation his laws, the Ten Commandments, They were a summary of what it meant back for Abraham to walk before me blameless, God said. And then God reiterated to the nation, you are my people, I am your God. And the law was about here is what you must do to live in a way that is pleasing to me and be a light to the world. And yet once again, the people did not obey God. They disregarded God's law. They worshipped gods they made with their own hands. They did not act like God's people. And so, once again, the nation was taken back into slavery. The nation of Babylon came up and destroyed the city, razed the temple. They killed many, and those that were left were were drawn back into Babylon as slaves. But God promised, once again, that there would be another deliverer. A new Moses would come and lead the people back into a promised land. A second exodus would begin. 
But this path to freedom would prove to be much more difficult. You see, the problem that this nation faced was not the fact that in another nation had, had enslaved them. No, God was powerful. He, he got rid of the Egyptian army. He could do that again. The problem was that the people's own sin was the reason for their slavery. So uh, another savior like Moses would not do. They need somebody who will take care of their sin. That's why they were enslaved. And so God promises a unique kind of deliverer, a savior who will not simply free the people from political oppression, but will be a savior from sin. He will die in the place of transgressors. He will take the sin of many. He will transform their hearts in the inside so that they will live in a way in which they want to please God. That's the savior that's promised in the Old Testament. But who could possibly come and do all those things? Well, the Gospel of Mark is written to tell us. The Gospel of Mark opens with the words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That references back to the very beginning, you know, in the beginning when God made the world. But here's the beginning of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Mark, at the very beginning, uh, talks about John the Baptist, who quotes from those same prophecies that speak of a new kind of Savior who will come. He quotes from Isaiah, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And the first thing we see in in, uh, the book of Mark about Jesus is that he is baptized by John in the Jordan River. And there Jesus is presented as a kind of second Moses coming out of the water. And and Jesus uh, will then, and, and John tells us that Jesus will will create this new kind of baptism. A new kind of passing through the water where God will save his people and judge all those who oppose him. And Jesus shows himself in the book of Mark to be a a, a greater Moses, a, a true and greater Moses, the true and real Elijah, the true and real Jeremiah. Jesus shows himself to be the true and real David, the king of Israel, and even of the whole world. But that still doesn't capture the full identity of who Jesus is because he's also God. He is God come in the flesh. And this fits perfectly with the predictions that we see in the Old Testament where God himself will come down to save the people. God himself will be Israel's king and will lead the people to freedom. And Jesus demonstrates his identity over and over again in the book of Mark. He shows that he has power over natural forces, power over demonic forces. He has authority to forgive sin. He has wisdom to interpret the scriptures in such a way that leaves his opponents speechless. He silences everybody who opposes him. And from all this, it should be crystal clear who he is. No one should be able to have have questioned that he is exactly that Messiah that the prophets predicted would come. And yet, and yet, the religious leaders reject him. This is the greatest irony in the world, really. The religious leaders based their authority and their role on the fact that they were the, I like to say, Messiah watchers. They were the ones who were positioned to watch for the Messiah, and they would tell the people when he was here, and they would preserve the people in holiness until they came. That was essentially what the role of the religious leaders was back then. Because everybody knew that the Messiah would come, and they were watching for him. 
And yet, when the Messiah does actually come, the religious leaders reject him because they want to hold on to their own authority. The religious leaders want to preserve the the outward displays, the outward trappings of their religion. They want to preserve the temple and their authority over the people. And so they reject what is the substance of it all, Christ. They want to hold on to the external things and, and they don't want to give it up for the substance that has come to be with them. What will happen next? Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. That's what we'll look at In this week, Mark chapter 13. That's our passage for this morning. And that was the longest introduction that I've ever done. And actually, it's not over yet. You see, what I just tried to do there was tell you the story of the Bible all the way up to Mark 13. Mark 13, I think, I'm convinced is a critical passage in Scripture. So it's helpful if we understand the background before we see what this passage is saying. And And I want to ask you the question, in light of what I just told you, does that story that I told you matter for your life? Does does that story have consequences for your life? Well, you might say, yeah, it does. Now I understand the Bible better so I can give better answers in Sunday school. Well, okay, beyond that. I wonder, have you ever considered that the Bible is really one coherent story? From beginning to end, it's one story. Perhaps previously you thought that the Bible, you know, was good, but it was more or less a collection of spiritual writings. Now you see, oh, actually it's one coherent story. Friends, do you realize that that carries a huge implication? Because if the Bible is one coherent story, then it can claim, and in fact it does actually claim, to be the story of all stories, the story in which we find ourselves, the story that makes sense out of every other story. What do I mean by that? We make sense of our story, of our lives, by putting it in a greater story. That's what we do. Where did I come from? How did things go so wrong in the world? What must happen to put them back to right? Where am I going? How will this end? What is my role? Friends, those are questions about the grand story that you answer every day in order to make sense of your story. And how you answer them carries huge implications for how you live. For instance, if you believe that when you die, that is it, well, that'll have huge implications for how you think of the here and now. It'll suck the meaning out of life. And it'll tempt you to live for the here and now, just for pleasure, because, you know, nothing is transcendent. But if you believe in a resurrection, and if you believe in a final judgment, then you will look at everything very differently. Now, I bring this all up, this whole long introduction, is is because Mark 13, I'm convinced, is a very important passage in Scripture for the the storyline of the Bible. And that means that it's a very important passage for our own lives as well, but not in the way you might think. It's not applicable in our lives in the sense that it gives us, you know, 10 steps to a happier marriage or how we relate to one another. Actually, much of Mark 13 sounds quite strange, but it's really, really applicable for our lives because it tells us the story and it helps us fit our lives within God's story. And that makes this passage strange as it may seem to us 
worth working through. Let me pray for us and we'll look at the passage. Father, help us to understand your word. Lord, we pray that what is spoken will be clear. Help us to understand the great important truth that you have put here. And Lord, cause us not merely to look at this as academic information. Cause us to see this as the story in which we live. Lord, help us understand this story better that we may live our lives in a way that is more pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, this passage is a little bit difficult to work through. And what I want to do, instead of just reading the whole thing, is sort of read it bit by bit and give you a running commentary. Uh, I will be honest with you, I haven't figured out everything in this passage. Actually, many things in this passage I, have, I really don't understand yet. Ask me 10 years from now, maybe I'll have a better understanding. But as of now, you can ask me questions and I will say, that is a really good question. <laughs> Silence. Um, Nevertheless, I think what we'll see here is enough stuff that is really, really clear that we can learn a lot from it. So I'm going to describe to you how I see the passage, what it's doing, and then we'll conclude with some application at the end. And again, the goal is that as this passage explains for us the story of Scripture, that we can understand our own stories better and put them in there. Okay, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So, so what's happening there is that the disciples are coming out of the temple, and, and they just think that the temple is awesome. And it is. You know, I don't know if you've read any, any books about the temple back then, um, but, but this, this temple, maybe your study Bible has a chart right next to it. it, it the temple is gigantic. Think Think something like 20 football fields long. I don't think we have buildings just in our everyday experience to compare it to. You know, maybe the Kennedy Center times 10 or 15 or something like that. This, this thing is huge, and it's, it's beautiful. It, it's, uh, got, it has columns uh, surrounding it, overlaid with gold. It was awe-inspiring. And the temple sits on top of a mound that takes up one-sixth of the city. So, you know, wherever you are in the city, you're just draw- your attention is drawn to this temple. Visitors who would come to Jerusalem would say things like, you've never seen a beautiful city until you come to Jerusalem, and you've never seen a beautiful building until you see the temple. And now, the other thing you have to realize, just to understand what's going on here, is that the disciples... These are, these are from the guys are from the sticks, right? They're from Galilee, you know, a fishing village. They've never seen more than a two or three story building in their lives. Jesus is taking them to Jerusalem probably for the, or one of the first times, and, uh, and they see this temple and they're amazed by it. It reminds me of the first time I went to New York City. I wasn't exactly from the sticks, but nevertheless was not in a city as big as New York. And, and I just stared up at the buildings the whole time. I was in awe and wonder. Perhaps something similar has happened to you. Well, the disciples are experiencing this, but to a much greater degree. And they're struck by the beauty and majesty of these buildings. And I imagine there's a sense of religious awe as well. It inspired a sense of transcendence. And they're struck by this, and they say to Jesus, wow, isn't this amazing? 
But Jesus says to them, look there at verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's amazing right there. That's a huge claim. This this temple that, that they're pointing to right here, stones upon stones. Some of those stones are 42 feet long, weighing over a million pounds. These stones will be torn down, Jesus says. Jesus is saying there, don't let that fool you. This sense of transcendence, this sense of majesty that this temple inspires, it's exceedingly temporary. It will be destroyed. Now, later on, the disciples approach Jesus privately, verse 4, and they say, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? Now, if you think about it, that's a, a really logical question. The temple is going to be torn down, and I think they're saying, I don't want to be in it when it happens. So when's this going to happen, and how am I going to know so that I'm not going to be there when it does? And the answer that Jesus gives weaves all sorts of events together. First, I think Jesus begins by talking about the general trials that they and all Christians will experience. I don't think the beginning part here is talking about the the temple being torn down per se. It's just talking about life in a fallen world until Jesus comes. And what he's saying here is, at this point in the story, expect trials. Don't be surprised. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus talks about various deceivers that will be out there. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. Friends, one of the hardest things for Christians to deal with is the fact that then and now, uh, all who claim to be speaking for Christ are not really speaking for Christ. Friends, do you realize that that won't be the case in heaven? I mean, there will be no question. Jesus will, will hear it from his own lips. No one will be telling you anything false. But friends, today, there's a lot of people saying things in the name of Jesus that are just wrong. And we have to be on guard about that. This means that as Christians, we need to be using our minds. We must not just unthinkingly absorb everything that people tell us is true. We need to test it. You right here should not be unthinkingly absorbing everything I am telling you is true. Especially with this passage. You must test it. That's what we must do. Jesus also says here in verse 7 that there will be wars and rumors of wars. So don't be alarmed. See that there in verse 7? Don't be alarmed. Jesus is saying here that all of this is normal. And when you see it, don't think, oh, the end has come. No, it's just birth pains. It's what you experience along the way. And when I I read birth pains, I think of it like this. Um, Perhaps some fathers have had this experience. You know, you're... Your wife starts experiencing birth pains, and you're like, well, okay, call the helicopter right now. And, and she's like, no, no, I'm, it'll last for much longer. I'm just going to go about folding laundry. That's what Jesus is saying here. Yes, it's bad, but it's not the end. It's just what we experience along the way. Friends, we need to understand this, because people often look at the events in the world today, and they get really concerned. I've counseled many people who struggle with fear of the end times. It's sort of this end time phobia thing. 
And I understand why they they think that. I mean, there are scary things in the world. But Jesus is telling us about these things and what to expect precisely so that we don't worry. He's telling us that this is just part of the story, so expect it and don't freak out when it happens. Another thing that's perfectly normal in our world today is persecution. Look there at verse 9. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Notice there it connects the gospel being proclaimed to all nations with the persecution that we experience. Friends, please hear this. Following Jesus means bearing witness for him. And we, when we bear witness for him, that means experiencing his disgrace, experiencing what he bore. And Jesus is telling us not to be scared or worried. He's telling us this not so that we would be scared or worried, but because he is the good shepherd and he just wants us not to be alarmed. He wants us to know that he is with us. Look there at verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. Friends, let let that comfort you. When you experience persecution as a Christian, Jesus is there with you. He is never more with you than in that moment. And he's telling us this, not to frighten us or scare us away, but just so we know that it's part of the story. And friends, I think we need to hear this. Because so often when there's a bill passed in the government or when a verdict comes down from the court that doesn't seem supportive with our Christian faith, we think sometimes, oh, the sky is falling and something unexpected has just happened. But friends, it's clearly not unexpected. Jesus tells us that, look there at verse 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's that's what it says. Do you see that there? You will be hated by all for my namesake. That is Jesus' instructions about what we should expect from the world. Friends, how has this verse proved true for you this week? How have you this week been hated for Christ's sake? And please understand it. It doesn't count if you're hated because you were actually rude and obnoxious to somebody and therefore they hated you. If you're a boss at work and you're treating your employees unkind and they hate you, well, don't think I'm being hated for Christ's sake. No. It doesn't even count if you're being hated because of the color of your skin or your nationality or your economic status. Friends, all those things are bad and lamentable and we as Christians should fight against them. But that's not being hated for Jesus' sake. No, being hated for Jesus' sake means being hated for our loving and persistent witness of the gospel. Friends, how have you experienced that this week? If you haven't, perhaps thank God that he has delayed what is normal. Don't be surprised if it comes back. And ask yourself, am I really bearing witness for Christ? Well, let me recap what's going on here. Jesus has predicted that the temple will be torn down. His disciples realize that this is a cataclysmic event. It's a huge thing, and they don't want to be there when it happens. So they ask, when's it going to happen? How am I going to know? 
And Jesus begins by telling them that it is just normal for Christians to experience suffering. We ought to expect it. But then, verse 14, I think Jesus moves to answer their question more directly. He is kind of answering their question more directly, but things aren't quite as straightforward as we would like them to be, as we'll see. But but this is what he says, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolations, let the reader understand, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, standing where he ought not to be, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, what I want you to see at first, at least, is that there's a clear break in Jesus' instructions. Up to this point, Jesus was telling them what is normal and to be expected from every Christian, but now Jesus is saying, okay, but when you see this happen, get out of town quickly, flee. Verse 15 and 16, if you're on top of your roof, don't go back down into your house. If you're in the field, don't go back, just just get out of there. If you have young children or you're carrying a child, it will be hard for you. Jesus' instructions at this point are just to get out of town. And the million-dollar question here is, what is he talking about? And not everybody agrees. Good Bible teachers come down in different places here. And as I said, I've read the commentaries, tried out various positions. Honestly, I'm not fully comfortable with anything I've read, but I'm also certainly not going to come up with my own theory in, in a week looking at this passage. But I think what's going on here, at least is he's talking about events that happen in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem is sacked by the Romans. Now, think about what happens here. Jesus says that the temple will be destroyed. They ask him, when will it be destroyed? It actually is destroyed in 70 A.D., and the description that Jesus gives fits perfectly with what happens. And and just so you can see that, let me tell you a little bit about what happened. Around 66 A.D., about 40 years or so after these events, there was a squabble over taxes. And people in Jerusalem rebelled. And then Rome came in over a period of about three years and sacks Jerusalem and burns the temple completely to the ground. Not one stone is left upon the other. It's horrific. Historians are not exactly sure how many people are killed, but some say one million. Populations were smaller back then, so that is an enormous amount of people. Uh, Some reports say that there were 500 crucifixions of men, women, and children per day for months. The whole Mount of Olives, where they are standing right now, was covered in crosses. And put that in perspective, the most Hitler did was eliminate murder. Two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe, the Romans probably... Uh, got closer to 95% of the Jews living there. This is genocide. It was horrific. But even more than the loss of life that happened then was the loss of their religious identity. For them, at least, that would, they would say. The temple is destroyed, and this is judgment on the religious leaders because they did not recognize Jesus when he came. Earlier in the book, we read that Jesus cursed the fig tree, Right? He cursed the fig tree because it looked good on the outside, but there was no fruit on the inside. And that was a parable for the nation. Externally, they're good. They've got this beautiful temple. But internally, it's rotten to the core. Jesus is the substance of their life. But they reject the substance to hold on to the superficial, to hold on to the external. 
And the judgment is that then Jesus will take away the external. The fig tree will die. And friends, this is a powerful lesson for us if we think about it. If you reject Jesus because you hold tightly to something else, be aware that first of all, your grip on that something else is not nearly as strong as you think it is. I mean, we like to think that we're holding on to something so tightly that it can't possibly fall. Friends, it can fall. And second, what you're holding on to is much more temporary than you realize. Later on, at the end of this passage, verse 31, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Everything in life is exceedingly temporary, except for Jesus' words. And friends, when Jesus utters that, think about how unintuitive that would have seemed right then. I mean, they're standing next to the temple. And Jesus is comparing his words, I mean, the, the, the speech out of his mouth, it just seems to go out and dissipate with this temple that is built of solid stone. And he's saying, these words are eternal. This temple is not. Think about how unintuitive that would have been. But it is true. Jesus' words are powerful. They're stronger than anything else. And you know the great destruction in 70 A.D.? Almost no Christians were killed. You know why? I think because they took this advice from Jesus. They fled. They obeyed this passage. And when they saw the Romans coming, they got out of there. Now, what is this great abomination of desolations talking about? Well, it's, it's a clear reference back to the book of Daniel. Jesus or Mark adds this phrase, let the reader understand, to tell us that while the reader of Daniel is going to be able to understand what he means, I still would like further instruction, by the way, but uh, in Daniel chapter 12, we read about the abomination of desolations will come, and and that's fulfilled years ago with uh, someone named Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, who sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple 200 years before Jesus' time, and that was horrible desecration for the temple. I mean, you could only sacrifice clean animals in the temple. The pig was the dirtiest of all animals to them. They desecrated the temple. Then they destroyed it. And then what Rome does here could certainly count as abomination of desolations. However, here it gets into the difficulty of piecing all this together. Scripture seems to expect an abomination of desolations in the future. Second Thessalonians 2 talks about the man of lawlessness who will, be, who will present himself as Christ in the temple. And Revelation 13 seems to speak of the beast doing abominations as well. So what do we make from this? Well, I think there's something of a near fulfillment and a far away fulfillment. Something of this does happen in 70 AD, just like something happened that Daniel prophesied. But yet there is something else to come. And at the very least, we can say from this that the opposition to Christ and to his people is not going to stop with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. No, it will only increase. Beyond that, we also can say that God is in control and God knows exactly how it will happen. And in no way is God telling us this to scare us, but rather so that we would take comfort in his word and we would rest in him. I think we can also say that what is clear will, need, will become clear when it needs to be. 
the early Christians read this passage and it was clear to them that it spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem and they got out of there and they were saved because they trust in God's word. And we must cling to scripture too and trust God's word. And what needs to be clear will be clear when it needs to be. Now, thankfully, this story does not end with the abomination of desolations. We're getting to the end of the the message here, but I can't end quite yet. We have to get to something much more positive. Look there at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, so after all those bad things, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Friends, Christ will return. That's what gives Christians hope. That's what animates all of our actions. This helps us when we see our loved ones persecuted for Christ's sake. And this helps us when our loved ones persecute us for Christ's sake, which this passage clearly talks about as well. Jesus will return, and that is perfectly clear here. Notice how Jesus says that we should set our hope in this, and we should watch for this. Uh, Starting in verse 32, Jesus says, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the, the will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Friends, the coming of Christ is our greatest hope as Christians. That event will transform everything. The Apostle Paul says when Christ comes in glory, we will be transformed to be like him. That's what we wait for. That's what we watch for and we hope for. But so we're so good at actually putting our hope into other things, aren't we? Sometimes we we put our hope in that day when I'll finally be out of debt or that day when I will get married or that day when I will finally get children or that day when those children will finally leave the house. We, We look and we invest in all sorts of things and we think that that will transform our lives. But that's because we're living in the wrong story. We're living in a story where the Savior is this person or this thing or this money or this power. The Savior is Christ. And we need to understand and put ourselves in that story so that we put our hope in him. Now, notice how clear here Jesus is that nobody knows the time of his return. I mean, he couldn't be more clear about that, right? He doesn't just say it. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Not even himself. Friends, that's very, very helpful for us that he made that so clear. Because so many people out there want to try to sell you on some other day that Jesus will return. And and that's just a lie. That's just not true. I talked to one person once who, who told me, oh, we can't know the day when Jesus will come, but we can know what's going to happen right before he comes and then therefore be pretty sure. 
Well, Jesus here seems to think otherwise. Do you, do you pretend to know more than he does? We must not believe anybody who tries to tell you that they know when Jesus is going to come back because they're clearly not taking it from Scripture. Let's also think, and this is a little bit harder to do, but I want to go here anyway. Let's think about what that would have done for the disciples when they heard this. I think when we read the Gospels, we have a tendency to think as if the disciples knew everything that we know, and they actually did not. Uh, They were missing very many things, or they knew them in theory. They heard Jesus say them, but they couldn't possibly imagine uh, what that would actually look like. The disciples would have naturally thought, and were certainly tempted to think, that there was this direct progression between all that Jesus was doing and saying, his his victories over the, the, the demonic forces, his victories over nature, his victories over the religious leaders, they would have thought that all of that led directly to Jesus coming in glory and, and bringing about uh, uh, political freedom and restoration right then and there. That's what they seemed to be thinking of. That was their default mode again and again. But Jesus says to them, look, you don't know the day or the hour. You don't know when I'm coming back. Which is to say also that there's not going to be a direct line between all these events. Oh, we see Jesus doing this, this, and this. We can predict when he's going to come back. There was something else that they couldn't quite understand yet. Jesus does not go directly from these political victories over his opponents to ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. No. Within a few days after these events, Jesus dies. And that was a shock to his disciples, even though he warned them about it again and again. But he was dying on the cross because that's the kind of Messiah he needed to be. Remember, he couldn't simply be another Moses who would lead the people to political freedom. Because why? Because the people had sinned. Their biggest problem was the fact that they did things wrong and God's judgment was against them. So Jesus had to be the Messiah who would come and die on the cross to take the the sin that we deserved. He had to to stand in our place so that God treated him as how we deserve and then God could give us what what Christ would deserve, namely glory and honor. See, the Gospel of Mark is about that Jesus demonstrates that he is clearly in the right and those who oppose him are clearly in the wrong and then Jesus dies for those who are in the wrong. He dies for the, the religious leaders who are persecuting him. Some of them actually came to faith. He dies for the the Roman soldiers. When he died, one of them said, truly, this is the Son of God. And then Jesus rises again from the dead. Victory over sin and death. But even right then and there, he doesn't come back in glory to bring everything to fulfillment right then. No. Instead, life goes on for at least another 2,000 years. Why? Why that delay? Why not come right there and then in power and glory? Well, I think it's because of what we see he will do when he comes back. Look there at verse 27. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Friends, Jesus' coming has been delayed so that the gospel can go to the ends of the earth and gather his people there. And then when he comes, he will receive the praise and glory from people all over the world, from every nation, tribe, and language. 
Jesus delays his coming back so that he can come back for more people. And it's our job in the story, our place in the story, is to be telling others about who he is so that they too can believe in him. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder, what do you think of this story? Is there a Jesus who will return in power and glory? Well, friends, what this, this Bible says to you, what, what this story says to you is your place in the story is to believe on him now. Believe on him and look back to his cross, look back to the gospel, and look forward to his return and trust in him that he will gather you when he comes. Now, friends, there's a lot more we could say about his return, but I want to try to connect one more thing. Remember, part of my goal here is to show you that this is one coherent story so that you can fit your story in here. And and I want to show you the connection between Jesus' return and the temple itself. Verse 26, notice there, when Jesus returns, he will come in clouds. Do you see that there? Now, I think we we misunderstand this passage a lot because of how, you know, the artwork that we see of Jesus' return, and he's coming through the clouds, and and you have him sometimes riding on his own little, little cloud. That's not what I think this passage intends to say at all. I still think he will come down. I mean, he says that the angels say to the disciples, he will return as you see him go. But this reference to clouds has a a very specific meaning to it. Um, In the Bible, clouds has this idea when it's paired with glory and power. It's it's talking about the the glory cloud. Uh, There's a Hebrew word for it, the, the Shekinah glory. The presence of God that we can feel. And, and in the Bible, we see that referenced in various places. You see that God created the world, and the Spirit is hovering over the depths of the deep. And then the glory cloud shows up in the temple, too. And it's God's presence. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, you see that at one point, the people are so bad, they've sinned so much, that the glory goes away. The glory, as essentially God's presence, goes into exile because the people have been so wicked and cruel. And the big question then is, how will it come back? And it comes back right here. When Jesus comes in clouds, in glory and power, he is the presence of God coming back to be with his people. Yes, he came the first time as the presence of God as well. He is God in the flesh. He's God coming to be with us. But there, his glory is veiled. We cannot see the true power and glory of him at that time. But he will return in such a way that it will be fully evident. And his glory will envelop all of us. We will be in the cloud with him, just like the disciples were at the transfiguration when they were enveloped in that glory as well. He will return, and we will be with him. Friends, this is the story we find ourselves in. It is the story of all stories. And what can we learn from this? One, we must repent and follow him. We must turn from our false stories, our false commitments, and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And not set our hope in anything else but in him. We also learn from this that not every passage of scripture is clear, and that's okay. I think I have more questions about this passage than I have answers, and maybe you do as well. We can all, we're all in the same boat there. It's one of the hardest sermons I've preached because I don't have everything all figured out. But that's okay because there's a lot here that is very clear, and we can take that and learn from it. 
Third, we see in this passage that God's Word is true. And God's Word is proved true for the early Christians when they trusted God's Word and escaped. And God's Word will prove true for us too. Friends, it's easy to be deluded with displays of greatness, isn't it? As the disciples were when they said, look at these majestic stones and temple and buildings. We like powerful buildings and powerful things and dynamic personalities. Those things entice us and we, we tend to believe them and follow them. But the true substance of everything is Christ. And, and if that substance is missing, if Christ is missing, then it is simply an empty shell. One day Christ will come back in glory and we will see His glory. We will be impressed with Him and we will follow Him. But for now, the way Christ manifests Himself is in weakness. Clothed in frail humanity. Through what appears weak but is actually powerful, namely His Word. Friends, preaching is not designed to be this great rhetorical display of power that you say, oh, wow, if he, if he says it like that, it must be true. Preaching is supposed to be foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who don't get it. It's the power of God's word presented in, in simply, it's the power of God presented simply in words, words about the gospel, words about Christ that has the power to transform our lives. Finally, watch for Jesus to return in power. This truth, the truth is that Jesus could return at any moment. And that does a couple things for us. It's freeing and sobering at the same time. It's freeing because it means that nothing else in your life really matters all that much compared to that. It will will radically transform everything. We look at that. It's not a matter of if, but of when. He will return, and we can believe that. It frees us from preoccupations with other things. It frees us from enslavement of other people's opinions. But it's also sobering, too, because we must watch. We must be ready. Being ready does not mean spending hours of reading books on the end time so that we can pretend to have everything figured out. Being ready means living your life with integrity now as a witness for Christ. Ask yourself, is this how Christ would like, is this how I would like Christ to find me when he returns? If not, it will change because he's coming. Let's pray.